All right, great. Uh, well, thanks everyone for joining us. We're really pleased to have you with us. This is the very first installation of um, our new webinar series, Progressive Christian Voices, Today and Tomorrow. My name is Brian Elaine. I'm the founder of Compassionate Christianity and Writing for Your Life. Um, it's a pleasure to host all of these prominent Christian authors, and they're all people that I really like and respect a lot. So it's really going to be fun to just spend time hanging out with them. Um, all of these authors in these first four webinars have been um, published by Broadleaf Books or one of the other imprints from uh, 1517 Media, such as Fortress Press or uh, Beaming Books. Um, today's webinar will be followed by three additional webinars in the series on October 6th, 11th, and 13th. And there will be also another series of webinars sometime down the road, probably in January. So in any event, joining us tonight. Christy Adams, Guthrie Graves with Simmons, and Kate Rademacher. Christy Lauren Adams is a speaker, author, youth advocate, and ordained Baptist minister. She's the author of Parable of the Brown Group, which highlights the cultural and spiritual truths that emerge from the lives of young Black girls. Parable of the Brown Girls received awards for Best Young Adult Book from the African American Literary Awards and the New York Black Librarians Caucus. Her next book, Unbossed, how Black Girls Are Leading the Way, will be released in the spring of 2022. So we'll definitely look forward to that, Christy. Um, she works as a Dean of Spiritual Life and Equity at the Hill School, where she also teaches religious studies. She's the founder and director of the Becoming Conference, an annual conference and leadership cohort designed to empower, educate, and inspire girls between the ages of 13 to 18. Christy's a graduate of Temple University and a graduate of Princeton Theological Seminary, she currently sits on the advisory board for Word Made Flesh, a nonprofit organization existing to serve among the most vulnerable of the world's poor. So, Christy, welcome. welcome. Thanks for joining us. <clears throat> Guthrie Graves Fitzsimmons is on a mission to reclaim religion from political conservatives. Amen. According to Teen Vogue, a progressive Christian writer and activist for almost a decade, he has worked in faith-based public policy advocacy. He currently is a fellow in the Faith and Progressive Policy Initiative with the Center for American Progress. Guthrie is the author of Just Faith, Reclaiming Progressive Christianity from Broadleaf, and is the founder of The Resistance Praise. He's a frequent commentator on religion and politics for a variety of national news outlets. Guthrie is a graduate of Union Theological Seminary, where he was the William Sloan Coffin Scholar in Christian Social Ethics. Guthrie's been featured on um, several Writing for Your Life events and is a contributor to our book, How to Heal Our Divides. He lives in Louisville, Kentucky with his husband, Reverend John Russell Sanger. So welcome, Guthrie. Yay, good, good book cover. <laughs> Kate Rademacher's latest book is Reclaiming Rest, The Promise of Sabbath, Solitude, and Stillness in a Restless World, also from Broadly. Kate works in international public health and is the author of Their Faces Shown and Following the Redbird. In recognition of Kate's leadership in global health, she is the inaugural cohort of Women Lift Health, sponsored by Stanford University. She's also been a featured speaker at several of our Writing for Your Life events and is a contributor to Compassion Christianity. So Kate lives with her family in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. So, th Kate, thanks for joining us. So um, this evening, we have several talk, topics to discuss, and um, but let's start with each of you maybe telling us a little bit more of your background and maybe a little bit more about your most recent book. 
Um, Christy, could you get us started? Yeah, I, for, I forgot that my bio gave pretty much most of the background. <laughs> um, so I don't know what else to say. Uh, <laughs> or, um, you know, I, uh, I, I am at, in Pottstown, Pennsylvania at the Hill School. Um, and I teach a class called Religion and Film in Contemporary Society and a class called Religious Radicals, which is an ode to um, uh, a professor of mine who just passed away, Professor Albert Rabito from Princeton University, who taught religious radicals. So um, that's what I do as far as my day job is concerned. Um, and just um, been writing and didn't really stumble into it. It's just something that sort of um, eventually sort of evolved for me. I didn't set out to be an author or anything like that. Um, and people ask me that quite often, like, when did you know? And I'm like, I'm not really sure I had a road, road to Damascus moment when it came to writing. It just happened, you know. Uh, um, Maybe you can tell like, us a little right. bit about the parable of the brown throat, because that was such an yeah. important book. Parable, um, parable came about, actually, when I was in the car, just driving home, I had done some counseling um, and was doing some one-on-one -on -one counseling at a counseling, it's called the Christian Wellness Center Counseling Center in New Jersey. I was living there at the time. And uh, I just would have these profound, intimate moments of one-on-one -on -one counseling, uh, pastoral counseling with these young Black girls. And I remember being in the car thinking to myself on the way home, I feel so full when I leave these sessions, um, just as much as I feel like they are coming to me, I feel like I'm getting so much from them. And I felt fuller than I felt leaving church on a Sunday morning. I remember thinking that specifically, like, wow, like, wow, like I, I want for other people to experience this fullness of this wisdom that I'm getting from these girls. And I promised myself if I ever had the opportunity, a platform to center their voices, then I would. And so parable sort of came to me that way. Not in that moment. It's probably maybe like a year after that. Um, but yeah, that was a promise that I made to myself. The parable, um, the stories are sort of written anonymously, and the new book that, I, that I've written on Lost are actual girls um, that are in leadership now. Um, the only problem, and I was telling my editor this earlier today, is that when you write about actual girls, they change so much in two years. I was just looking <laughs> at one who's like her hair when I interviewed her, and we have her picture in the book, and it's like out to here. She's, you know, adolescent girl. She just shaved it all off. So it's, she doesn't even look like that anymore. So I'm like, you know, they grow, they evolve, you know. So um, so the leadership of the girls that I'm writing about now, um, these are girls that are actually leading organizations or movements and things like that. But in parable, they were anonymous stories. So the girls' identities were, were kept secret. Good, good. Well, we'll talk about future work more in a, in a few yeah. minutes. Um, Guthrie. Welcome, and um, you know, tell us a little bit what happens in policy work, government policy work. That's kind of opaque to me. Thanks so much, Brian. And it is a complicated world of navigating uh, the public policy world. And I work at a secular think tank, the Center for American Progress, but I'm on a small team that deals with religion and gets to work with faith leaders, which I really love because faith leaders um, you know, are the prophets in our society that are proclaiming a better world and casting that vision of how we ought to live, that, you know, every we should live in a world at peace, a world where everybody has their needs met, where uh, no child goes hungry, where there's no violence in our communities. And so I get to work with that kind of vision. And then my colleagues, you know, somewhat get to work out the details of all of the uh, 
policy proposals, but it, it it's a dream job being to work with faith leaders. And uh, I've just, I grew up as the son of two labor union organizers and was always involved in progressive politics and uh, saw my parents work, you know, with worker dignity and worker rights. It's just the kind of other side of the coin from what I'd been learning in church about what Jesus taught. And then I kind of grew up and realized the religious right existed. And that was a, uh, uh, really uh, struggled with that and saw how much of our politics revolves around the religious right. And that disconnect made me want to get involved in this faith and public policy work. And so it's a kind of simple story uh, for me. And uh, I've been able to do this work for about a decade now. And then the, the writing I came to kind of after working in the field for a while and just wanting to see how, the media could be used to really uplift the work that was going on, that there is activism going on in faith-based communities, but it doesn't get a lot of attention. And so I see it as my mission uh, to uplift all of the work that's going on all around the country and all around the world, really. I'm really interested in progressive faith movements in other countries as well. Mm. And to do that in large platforms, um, and make sure that the narrative of uh, Christianity and religion is told better in this country. And so I was working on one article and it just kept getting longer and longer and longer. I was like, this is no one's going to publish this unless it's a book. And that was a really <laughs> daunting thought. But then it came several years later, it came out. And so uh, just great faith, awesome. uh, reclaiming progressive Christianity was just me writing and writing and writing and I, again, I, I wrote it as a love letter to progressive Christians. But there, every city I've been to across this country has a community of Christ followers doing the work of love and justice and creating a better world. Now, it may not be a mega church amusement park kind of thing, but there is a committed group of people doing this work of love and justice. Um, like when I was growing up and my parents were involved with the minimum wage campaign, it was like, the black church in Houston where I grew up was the heart of that campaign, was the heart of the organizing infrastructure uh, where I grew up. And so I just kept adding examples of all the different progressive advocacy that was rooted in the church, and it became a book. And so I'm just continuing every way I know how to uplift uh, the existence of progressive people of faith and progressive Christians, progressive Baptists, now that I'm a Baptist, uh, you know, all different kind of levels of uh different communities I'm a part of. And thanks for having me on, Brian. I'm looking forward oh, to this uh, conversation. I mean, Guthrie, you and I share that mission, right? You know, because, I mean, progressive Christianity is so fragmented and, you know, so much of it is not heard. And we are both working to try to help solve that, which I think is, is a really important thing to do. So, so thank you very much. Kate, welcome, Kate. One of the things I have to do is give Kate a shout out for thinking of this whole idea to do this webinar series in the first place and convincing me to do it. So, Kate, thank you very much for helping this to be a reality. <laughs> well, thank you, Brian. You're, you're the best because you're always up for a new thing. You're just so yes. entrepreneurial and creative and welcome any ideas. And I think Carl McCollum and I approached you, right? And so thank you. I mean, you're just amazing how you make things happen and bring people together. So thank you so much. Well, that's my job. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you have a different day job. So why don't you tell us about, uh, you know, your bifocational world? Yeah, for sure. Thanks. So yeah, as 
Brian knows I have kind of I identify as being bivocational. So I have a day job, busy day job at International Public Health. My um, I have manage a portfolio of activities focused on expanding access to contraception uh, in low-income countries, mostly in Sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia. And so, um, yeah, I have a master's in public health from UNC in Chapel Hill. And so I was living my life and then things changed. Uh, I was, uh, I think I'm, Dr. you said your story is simple. My story is not so simple. I uh, was very unexpectedly uh, it found myself on a conversion journey in my in early 30s and was baptized in the um, in my early 30s and was confirmed in the Episcopal Church um, by Bishop Curry, actually, who was um, in the North Carolina Diocese at the time. So um, I was I have I was very surprised by that. I'm married to a very devout Buddhist and remain sort of surprised that Jesus called me to him. Um, but I'm such a. Uh, uh, joyful convert. Um, I was raised by a social justice activist mom, but not as a Christian. And um, to be, my mom says she's always okay with me being my foil. Um, she's a real, my mom's been a social justice activist and warrior for 50 years, but she um, has a lot of squeamishness. I think it's fair to say around Christianity and I really kind of internalize those messages. Um, so for me, Dr. Your book, I, I stayed up last night reading it until um, midnight. You're, I'm like your constituent. My, I feel like my work, my, my work in expanding access to contraception is is deeply informed by my faith. Like it, I feel like is part of my vocation. Um, but I haven't talked about that in the public square, and so I am just really sort of coming coming to that and being more vocal about my faith. Um, and part of that is writing. <laughs> Again, not only did did, um, did I get surprised by being called to the Christian faith? I was really surprised that I just felt this restless urge to start writing about it. My first memoir was published a couple years ago about my quirky conversion journey. And then um, Reclaiming Rest was published. I had a middle of another uh, memoir and then Reclaiming Rest came out this summer. So, um, and I think it's really, you know, it's about Sabbath keeping, but it's, it's really, um, for me, I talk about Sabbath as kind of an ongoing vehicle of my conversion because growing up um, being raised by social justice activists and sort of growing up in a very, very progressive community, I think there's this temptation to sort of feel like we have to save the world ourselves. And one of the kind of most um, challenging things for me theologically is to really, and that I keep getting challenged each week by the Sabbath, is um, the idea that I am not God and I'm not going to save the world by myself and that part of that I'm called to work and I'm also called to rest. And I think um, I talked to a lot of people who are deeply committed to justice, who are exhausted and burned out. Um, the World Health Organization classified burnout as an occupational phenomenon for the first time two years ago. So I think so many of us are struggling with fatigue and exhaustion. And, and so I think um, as we talk about what it means to be a progressive Christian, and, and um, I think we also need to be talking about um, rest as part of that. And Bishop Curry does such a beautiful job too about talking about rest as part of um, the way of love. So anyway, I'm delighted to be here. I, I, I like literally spent the weekend reading both Christy and Guthrie's books. So I, I mostly have like a ton of questions for them. Um, so I'm just <laughs> delighted to be part of this conversation. Thanks for having me. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Kate. Um, and so let's, let's move on to that next because, you know, you all are really smart people. So I'm very interested to know what you're paying attention to. What are you reading? that is influencing you, particularly from, you know, a progressive Christian social justice um, standpoint. So, Christine, you want to go first? Yeah. Um, 
I'm actually rereading the autobiography of Malcolm X. Um, I spent all summer um, just with, I usually just do one book in the summer. I'm not one of those people that's going to be reading like a bunch of books, you know, um, all at once. I'm like, okay, I'm going to focus in on this one. Part of it is because I was teaching it as well um, in one of my classes, but it, it is, it's timeless. I have like three behind me right now. You know, it's just, um, it's, it's not a Christian book, of course, but it's definitely a, it's a narrative, a spiritual conversion narrative. Um, Definitely timeless piece. Um, The things that X says and um, also difficult things, you know, Um, it's very, you know, very critical um, and justifiably so, but just how the context and how someone grows up shapes them so much um, and even religiously and just how he evolved even toward the end of his life. So I'm, I'm re rereading that. It's also in it for me, particularly in a space like I'm in now, I'm at a boarding school and it's a predominantly white institution. Um, Malcolm X can be a difficult read. And so it's important for me to interpret it, not water it down, but also interpret it. Um, as a historical text, but also a, a deeply spiritual one. Um, I didn't mention this earlier. I grew up in the Black church. That's so just sort of like, there were no evangelicals as far as I was concerned growing up. I was just so shielded by my experience. And my pastor at the time, he was very, very heavily involved in the community. Very, He was um, un, worked for a Rainbow Push Coalition under Jesse Jackson. He was Secretary of State for New Jersey. Uh, Buster stories. I think, uh, Brian, you probably know who he have familiarity, but so I was like, I grew up in that. And so um, even reading pieces, rereading pieces like Malcolm X, I mean, that's just sort of, um, it was sort of required reading for us, hmm. you know, um, in our community, you know, growing up, it wasn't, oh, he's Christian or he's not, you know, no, it was, he's, um, you know, a, a, a black man that's been shaped by society, by the unfortunate injustices in society, but also by, um, you know, just by his context, by his upbringing, and also religiously and sort of what that means. Um, so that's where I am right now. It's not a progressive Christian book, <laughs> but, um, you know, that's just sort of truthfully where I'm, so I'm doing a lot of underlining because there's a lot of stuff that is said that is so relevant to um, where we're at today. Well, I can totally believe that. And I do the same thing when I read. I have a red, you know, pen that I underline half the book. Mm-hmm. It's important for me to learn anyway. So, so thank you. Guthrie, how about you? What, are, what have you been reading lately? Well, I do the opposite. I don't annotate anything in my books, but then I spend 30 minutes looking for that quote. I <laughs> wish I could remember. So I should annotate. Uh, I did a, I read a a show and tell for the books uh, that are some of my favorites right now, A More Perfect Union, um, which is also out from Broadleaf Books by Adam Russell Taylor, the new president of Sojourners, a great book. And I I love uh, knowing what authors are doing, not, you know, when they're not writing, um, because, you know, a lot of people can, can have opinions but it's like, how are you living your life? And I've actually worked with Adam my entire career in different capacities and know that he's out there. Um, he's talking about what it means to, uh, you know, create the beloved community today, uh, which is a great book. Another one, uh, How to Have an Enemy. Um, this is a, a wonderful book. Really reshape my thinking about loving your enemies. So so often that that is used to mollify people and tell people not to, you know, engage in 
social justice activism or to be quiet and to not raise, you know, not be critical. That, and Jesus is called to love your enemies. Um, Melissa is a Mennonite pastor, and it's all about how uh, you can love your enemy while also confronting them and holding them accountable. Uh, it's just a wo- wonderful book. Um, and then the last one um, by Vanessa Cook is Spiritual Socialists. And I think sometimes the, the discussion of this is a great history book about uh, like far left kind of economic socialism and, uh, you know, informed by people of different faiths. And that really, for me, grounded, even I sometimes find myself being like, progressive Christian means like people who maybe vote democratic or moderates. And uh, no, there is like a far hard left socialist, like, you know, capitalism has completely failed and, and that's rooted in their faith. And so I'm, I always need reminders, even myself, that there are Christians across the political, economic, social spectrum in so many different places that are approaching it from their faith. And uh, Vanessa's book uh, was great talking about spiritual socialism and, you know, all, uh, all the, you know, Bernie Sanders, who's Jewish, obviously, went and he spoke to Christian audiences all the time about how his kind of democratic socialism there's a great article in Sojourners, too, about uh, AOC's biblical values, about how the democratic socialism is rooted for her and so many other people in their faith. So those are some of the books I'm uh, currently reading. I like to have a lot of books I'm kind of reading slowly. <laughs> Very cool. I often do that, too. What can you say? Um, Kate, how about you? Yeah, Guthrie, I'm glad to hear and Brian, because I'm like you, I have like a bazillion books. My family just can't believe it. Like I have so many books everywhere that I'm like in and out of. And Chrissy, I don't know. I don't know what's like better, but like the like focus, I think both have benefits. So I feel like I'm like teacher's pet by like, but I really am. I really did spend the weekend reading Chrissy's book and Guthrie's book. And so I'm just going to give them both a shout out. Um, I serve on um, the the board of a organization called National Crittenden. And so Christie's book really just sung to me um, in that space. And that organization works with um, girls and gender expansive um, youth uh, who are impacted by violence and chronic poverty and trauma. And so Christy, what I just really appreciate about your book so much, and I'm only a couple chapters in, is just really like that you're attending to the spiritual lives um, of of black and brown girls. And I just really, you know, I think a lot of um, the work that's been done with ACEs, et cetera, you know, we're thinking a lot about trauma and um, emotional wellness, but I think really just bringing sort of the spiritual perspective of what these girls are going through is just so important and powerful. I'm just, I'm grateful for that. Um, And like I said, I feel like Guthrie was just, you know, your book is um, sort of uh, really serves to me as a call to action because what I'm really taking from it is, again, that there's this silent majority of progressive Christians and the data that you show about um, that actually progressive Christians vastly outnumber um, conservative Christians is such an eye-opener. I just called my mom this afternoon. I was like, guess what? Out. She's like, no. Uh, (laughs) So it is very validating, as you say in your book. And I think we need to do people like me who, again, as I said at the beginning, are deeply deeply informed on a daily basis um, by my faith and 
stay very silent about that in the public domain. And again, I've done that for various, very specific reasons. Um, I work in birth control and, you know, who's, who is the face of opposition to birth control in our country? Like, you know, so it's not just my colleagues, but it's also my donors. So again, I think I need to be part of that solution of challenging, um, challenging the voice and also reclaiming the history. And I think that that's really, um, that's something I wrote about in my book. Um, I was really affected by um, when I was researching when I, my, writing my book, um, the book, uh, A Stone of Hope, Prophetic Religion and the Death of Jim Crow by David Chappelle out of UNC. And, and he really writes about how um, we get it wrong, like the credit we give to the civil rights movement um, really belongs not to the um, sort of secular Northern liberals, but rather to the, um, like the prophetic work of black Christian activists in the South. And so that really um, deeply sort of, that book really changed my own understanding of history. And Guthrie, you really go into that in a lot, in a lot of detail in your book, which really just, I think we have to reclaim progressive, the history of progressive faith in this country throughout the 20th century and into, into the century. So Anyway, again, uh, I'm not just saying it. Y'all's you books are really hitting the spot. So thank you both very much. Okay, well, can you repeat the one you just recommended? Yeah, it's kind of an academic book. It's A Stone of Hope, Prophetic Religion and the Death of Jim Crow by David Chappelle. I can put it in the, in the chat. He's an academic historian and actually identifies um, as an atheist. But he he really says, anyway, it's, it's very interesting just that we, we get the narrative about the civil rights movement wrong. Um, and so... And again, Guthrie, you can say more about this, but I think you really amplify that point in your book as well. Good, good. Um, well, I've got two that I wanted to mention. One of them is called Reparations, a Christian Call for Repentance and Repair. Um, I won't say that I'm terribly well-read on reparations, but I just love this book. I just thought it was just very um, compelling and insightful. So that's one that I've been uh, really excited about. And then I think in terms of impact, um, Brian McLaren's book, Faith After Doubt, you know, describes four different stages that a lot of folks go through in terms of their faith journey over the years. And um, I think it's, it's, it's a very useful book, particularly for people who maybe started off, you know, in an evangelical or fundamentalist kind of environment, but um, but having said that, I think it's it's really um, helpful for lots of people. So in any event, um, so we have a person who's raised their hand. Hen Henry, Henry Lease, would you like to um, ask a question? You can unmute if you'd like to. Okay, we will come back to Henry. Um, okay, so um, so let's move on a little bit. Um, you know, we've um, gone through a lot the last few years on multiple dimensions, whether it's COVID or politics or religious divides, all kinds of serious issues, racial divides probably being the biggest, I think. But um, I'd like to hear from each of you what you think are the most pressing issues that, you know, we as progressive Christians should um, figure out how to um, deal with. Um, 
Christy, again, why don't you go first? Sorry. Um, I was thinking about this when you sent it earlier, and I was thinking about, I was like, wow, oh, I can list all the isms, right? Of course, I can definitely start with um, racism and homophobia, et cetera. Um, and I'm, I'm sure we will talk about those. I spoke at chapel here a few uh, week ago, and um, I talked about just kindness, empathy, you know, just some of the basic. And I'm like, we're not as a community going to be able to tackle some of these uh, deeply rooted social issues, wounds, et cetera, if we don't just have like basic kindness down, <laughs> right? Like just basic love your neighbor. I mean, I see that a lot on Twitter and I feel like it's, uh, you know, love is sort of overused, but even deeper than that, it's just, we are, we are, I don't want to say a sociopathic society, but I just really feel like we are like a breeding ground of lack of empathy, particularly in the last five years. Um, and we're passing that on to sort of, uh, younger generations. Um, I wouldn't say that that's a social issue, but I'd say that it is a pressing issue. We're definitely in this sort of latter days generation, quote unquote, of this love of many will grow cold. Um, and I, I never saw that as being like the mission of the church. I never saw that as being missional, that statement. But now in the last, you know, um, last year or so, I'm like, wow, that's, that's missional. That's not just, oh, the love of many is going to grow cold and that's it. You know, it's, it's not a statement. It's a mission. Right. Um, and sort of it's like, OK, now how do we address this a problem statement and needing to come up with solutions and addressing it? Um, one of the things that I try to do and not to sort of bring back everything in the book, but, you know, like when I think about parable, um, you know, if, if there have been any reception to a positive reception or whatever it might be to the book is is people sort of like noticing the approach to these young girls as my teachers. Um, I think maybe once upon a time, the evangelical church, they probably still are, you know, very like missions, let's go take pictures with black babies and, you know, go across the ocean or whatever it is that, that, that we're, we're doing. I feel like they were on to something, but just the, the selfishness and pride masked that and got in the way. We really are supposed to be immersing ourselves, I think, in the among the least of these, right? Or among the the underserved or the marginalized or whatever, immersing ourselves not so that we can be sort of like the colonizing helpers, but immersing ourselves so that we can learn, right? Like so that we can be transformed, blessed are the poor. And so, um, you know, really when it comes to the, the young people that I work with, whether it's teaching or the girls with becoming or whatever, it is your spiritual transformation will take place. Your understanding of empathy, et cetera, you getting closer to God will take place when you get allowed the, this, demogra this demographic or this group or this experience to be your teacher. But it has to be so, um, uh, say, uh, so so opposite, so uncomfortable. So, you know, like I said, immersive. Um, I'm speaking broadly because I know my, my panelists will speak very like directly and specifically. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I truly believe that. And so it sort of goes into something else about, um, you know, how do you, how, how will we go about in doing that? Um, you know, us sort of identifying, not just, Oh, I'm going to go to the boys and girls club or, Oh, I'm just going to go downtown to such and such. And, 
you know, feed the poor people, the the mentality completely has to shift, right? To like, like I keep saying, they, this, they are my teacher, Um, like to becoming uncomfortable to, you know, not not roll, not just rolling your sleeves up and, and serving, but quite literally like, uh, the vulnerability and the humility of you becoming less than, right? Because the poor will always be with us. These communities will sort of always be with us. Well, why, you know? Um, and I think part of that is because we have, that's the only way we're going to transform. That's why Jesus, I think, said, you know, oh, you get the, the rich man, give all your money to the poor, give all, you know, give everything away to, to the rich man. He's like, oh, I can't do that. And he's like, that's the only way you're going to be transformed. That's the only way you're going to be saved. And I think that's the only way we're going to understand empathy. Um, I think once that door opens, I think once we as a community begin to do that, if we do, um, then we can tackle some of these other um, isms. We can tackle some of these other issues. Actually, I don't think it would be that much of an issue. You know what I mean? Like, I think it would be like a domino effect. But we just, um, you know, I, I... I, there were some, there was a, we we're doing LGBTQ week here at the, uh, for our school and courageous conversations around. And there was um, a, a speaker that we had today and she, and she was saying she identifies um, as, you know, she says, oh, they, them, or you can call me, she, her. He was explaining to the, to the students and I over, we overheard there were some students that made some comments, right, about it. And I'm thinking, wow, just last week I was talking about uh, I know for the, for the most part, you know, she was widely, you know, um, sort of uh, praised and, you know, celebrated at the end of the talk. But, you know, there's always like two, you know, um, and but I kept thinking you didn't get past a last week. There's no way, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there's no way I can sit and have, you know, and I say no way, but a conversation with you. I'm not going to list out the issues to you or why it's important for you to not understand all of that when being a decent human being is square one and we haven't even mastered that, being a decent, kind, empathetic human being. So I really truly believe that that's where we start and then it emerges from there. Oh, sorry. Um- yeah, empathy is pretty important, pretty fundamental, isn't it? <laughs> Guthrie, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, when I, I was thinking about this question, I thought about I teach uh, Bible study every Sunday at Highland Baptist Church here in Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, during the pandemic, we were you know, meeting over Zoom and everything. And I was like, this is the perfect opportunity to study the book of Revelation verse by verse. <laughs> uh, something I had not gotten around to yet in life. Um, and yet, I, you know, I was sort of familiar with the um, empire critical reading of uh, Revelation. But I don't know, sitting with this book uh, week after week during the pandemic really drove home the meaning of um, writing in this kind of dramatic, apocalyptic fashion that unveils, you know, going back to the meaning of uh, um, apocalypse in the Greek, unveils so much about what's going on, the status of our society, about who is first and who should be last, about the way we should order our society is wrong, and that um, it is wrong, not just in a kind of secular sense, but, but wrong on a deeply divine level. 
And I think uh, I'm also a, a, a kind of eternal optimist that the being raised by union organizers who, you know, on the picket line and everything and just face terrible odds to organize right now, given all the destruction of collective bargaining rights in this country, especially in the South, uh, where I grew up in and still live. I'm an optimist. And so my hope is that this pandemic um, and this moment we're in really does unveil a lot about how wrong our society, how wrong we allow our society to be. The idea that healthcare is uh, a choice that we allow people to be denied healthcare, housing, food, um, basic rights, basic standard of living. We choose as a country to allow people to die, to allow people um, to just have an economy that fails so many. And, and that is, uh, I think, been unveiled to a lot of people during the pandemic. Um, the work of Black Lives Matter activists have unveiled the deep systemic um, racism in our country. And there are deep uh, ways to address that, like reparations, like Congresswoman Barbara Lee's uh, Truth and Reconciliation Bill, which I think is really necessary to get at the deep um, lies we've told about race in this country. There's been a uh, unveiling of just um, how much overt white Christian nationalism, all the people at the insurrection, as awful as that was, those people, the insurrectionists have always been here throughout American history. And so a lot is being unveiled right now that we have to address. And uh, it's all interconnected and it's all, uh, that's why it's hard to, to, you know, list specific issues because so many things um, are connected, the, the border situation, so many different things we're seeing now. And uh, my, my hope is that seeing we're in a period where the, the seeing will lead to collective action. I, I hope so too. I was thinking, you know, the same thing, you know, Guthrie, that hopefully this, uh, this will be a positive attribute of the terrible things we've had to go through for the pandemic, but uh, remains to be seen. Uh, Kate, how about you? Yeah, so Brian, just to circle back to your question about sort of priorities or pressing priorities, so many people that I talk to are really deeply, deeply exhausted. And, you know, I, building on sort of what I talk about in Reclaiming Rest, I think we really need to recognize um, the role of rest in our spiritual lives, and not just as a self-care strategy, but truly as, um, you know, not just as a hack, <laughs> but truly as, as, we, as we discern um, what our vocational calling is to work, really honoring also um, the role of holy rest. And you know, I mean, I think just so many people, so many people I know who are doing amazing work are just at the end of their ropes. And I think one of the things that the pandemic has really revealed, especially for working parents, is that, you know, our society is not working for working parents and um, that we need to we need to build back better. And part of that, I think, um, you know, we need to. The other thing I just want to really emphasize is that rest is not just a personal issue. It's something, Sabbath is something we do in community. And I think as we um, evaluate how we can build back better, we need to be thinking about rest 
as a justice issue. Um, and Guthrie, you, I'm, I didn't see this in your book, Guthrie, maybe this is something you can in your next book, but really, you know, we, a Sabbath ethic has informed our labor laws um, for decades. And, you know, we have, uh, we have a history of having a public policy that is informed by a Sabbath ethic and a Sabbath theology. So I think as we ask ourselves, who has the, who has the right to rest and who can afford to rest? And those are, of course, two questions. And I think as progressive Christians, we often focus on who can afford to rest. And I think the, the minimum wage discussion that's going on right now is a perfect example of that. Um, we also have to ask ourselves who has the right to rest. I mean, Breonna Taylor was literally murdered while she was sleeping. So I think, you know, there's just been some compelling writing about who has the right to rest in our, in our society. So, um, you know, and that's, it's interesting. One of the greatest pushbacks I get from Christians about the Sabbath is about equity. And I think it's this question of like, well, is Sabbath really like, you know, for the privileged elite that only who can afford to take a Sabbath? And I think that we really need to turn that question upside down. And if we have a society where, you know, the, the Sabbath was intended to be a great equalizer, right? Like everyone was supposed to have the right to rest. So if not everyone in our society has the right to rest and can afford to rest, we know something is wrong. Um, and so that's, I think, has to be part of this discussion as we talk about sort of the way forward is um, how do we, again, have that, um, you know, there's, we focus so much on the work we need to do, the work we need to do to be better. But also, again, just on a personal level, I don't know about you all, but I just need to stay grounded in my own, um, you know, prayer practice and spiritual disciplines of stillness um, so that I can stay close to God as I'm discerning where I am being called um, to serve in the world and to lead in the world. And so I think that we, you know, that's something that hopefully we can also be supporting one another to do as progressive Christians is to stay really grounded in those practices of stillness and prayer, um, solitude, rest, holy rest, um, so that we can, you know, be really um, enlivened and uplifted through the Holy Spirit as we carry our, our work forward. Thank you, Kate. Um, Christian, there's a question for you that came in through a Q&A um, from Ron. He asked, how did you write such a, for such a diverse audience? How do you communicate core values and issues without switching for different audiences? Um, well, it's I talk about code switching in the book, right? <laughs> Which is like a thing, particularly for us as uh, for, for Black women, right? And, and predominantly... Um, predominantly or majority white spaces, we have to sort of like know how to talk the talk and we feel this pressure to turn on and turn off. Well, when I'm talking or mentoring my girls that I work with, I'm always like, you know, after a while you evolve sort of out of that, right? Where you're able to um, just be your authentic self, still be professional, know your context, but you be you approach everything as your authentic self. So whether I'm in a staff meeting, board meeting, or speaking on stage, or with my homies, like you know, there's certain things that I do. Um, I know the context, but I sort of try to stay true. It's a spiritual discipline. It's definitely like a personal thing. So when I'm when I was writing, or even when I continue to write, um, I have to be very intentional about not writing like thinking too much about, oh, I got to make sure I'm writing for everybody, right? Um, because when I do that, it definitely reflects and it comes off inauthentic in my writing. Hmm. Um, I, you know, one of the things um, 
Parable was under uh, Fortress Press before it moved into Broadleaf, and and uh, Emily Brower at the time was my editor. And uh, Emily would, you know, I would be thinking about all the different audiences. I want to make sure this speaks to everybody. And uh, she would comment back on the, on the side, you know, you, you guys know how it is, like on the side, all the little comments or whatever. And she's like, there's not enough about black girls in this chapter. Actually, you don't even say the phrase black girls enough in this chapter, hmm. you know, sort of like go back to the drawing board. And I was like, I thought I was, but I was trying to make sure that everybody understood that, you know, like, she's like, no, you're talking about black girls. That's your, that's who your demographic is. That's who you're talking about. And everyone will fall in line and everyone will adjust. And ever since then, I've really sort of kept that mentality um, that, you know, Jesus understood his, you know, who, who his audience was, how, how are the gospels still speaking to us today um, in contextually, right, in a completely different um, society in a context. So I try to keep that in mind as much as possible. I think I read here something about um, uh, you said uh, Buster did this as well. Yeah. Well, also I'm a product of Buster stories too, right? Obviously I've been under him since I was eight years old. So yeah, he was like a, very much a genius. He still is at um, knowing his context, but also sort of remaining true to who you are. So I felt like writing the, the girl story should be able to speak for themselves and whoever's life was ministered to or spoken to as a result. It's like, just just because they're black girls doesn't mean they're young doesn't mean that we all can't learn something from them <laughs> no matter where you're from right like that we all can't see jesus or the divine reflected in these girls and their stories alone by itself without me having to embellish it or change it up or to make it shift you know so that for the particular audience that i'm wanting to sell the book to um so that Again, I, I'm saying that out loud, but that's something that was like a, a constant in my head and in my practice from the beginning to the end of the book and, and the same thing with Unbossed. Very cool. So here's a question from Sarah to anyone who would like to take it. Do you think the Latino Catholicism has a place in progressive Christianity? Yes, I can jump in there. Um, I think. Um, I'm not sure what's behind that question, but I think um, Latino Catholic, Latino Evangelicals, um, definitely uh, mainline Protestants, you know, across the different breakdowns of Christianity uh, have a, a very active place um, in the movement. And I, I think we get into trouble when people try to define what progressive is. Because I've never met anyone I agree with all the time. Um, on any, you know, I don't agree. I disagree with my husband every day, you know, about something. Uh, and so, um, you know, I think uh, there are people who consider themselves progressive and are active in social justice on a number of issues who I maybe disagree with. In the in my book, Just Faith, I write about you know, there's disagreement among people thinking about war, like among strict pacifists versus people who think maybe there's a genocide about to happen in another country, we should intervene to prevent the genocide. And both those people, I'm not going to say, you know, uh, we have to divide up groups and like have a litmus test of everyone um, that is progressive. So yes, there are a lot of Latino um, progressive Christians, Catholics, uh, especially, you know, in the, in the pews, 
too often we get concerned with what leaders are doing and what the, especially I write a lot about Catholics in the book and spend a lot of my time dealing with Catholics. The bishops are one category, right? And it's a very hierarchical system, but the bishops are still one category. And there are so many people in the pews that have a diversity of beliefs. So go and, you know, look at statistics from Pew Research Center, from, you know, the majority of Latino Catholics don't want to overturn Roe v. Wade, for instance, that we, if you actually look at statistics, the picture of um, Latino Catholicism in the country change, it, you know, will change versus what the bishops are saying. Uh, and it's very diverse, including many progressives. I'll kind of jump on that just in a very basic. Um, the most Catholic movie that Pixar ever made was Coco, right? Um, I'm saying this because, again, I'm teaching religion and film and right now, and Coco is our film for next week. And the Day of the Dead is uh, in, inherently um, spiritual and Catholic. Um, it's a part of more of the Mexican Catholicism. Um, but I always say sort of at the end of that week um, with the, with my students is sort of like, what's, what is Coco speaking to us? What's the essential question here or the, the statement that is the film is trying to make through this. And we see that through the lens of the day of the dead, this idea of remembrance, right? Well, we all know remembrance is very much an essential part of um, our Christian faith. Right. Um, And, you know, do this in remembrance of me, but this idea of, keeping alive those that came before us. Um, the reason why I'm saying this is because there are, there are doors that are open even through that um, that speak to our mission as progressive Christians or as the body of Christ or whatever that, wherever you might uh, land on that spectrum. But the common ground we find here, right, through just even that film and through that film's lens of sort of like um, highlighting Again, uh, a, a, an, an, an inherently Catholic part of, of Mexican tradition. Um, we watch that and cry our tears and we call our, our loved ones, you know, and all of that. And but one, one thing we don't say is, oh, man, that was Mexican Catholicism. No, <laughs> you know, we've we've found a way to find common ground, even in a film like that. Um, that even speaks to our mission um, when it when it comes to um, well, guess you know progressive Christianity. Well, personally, I have a hard time drawing really strict lines between any us and them categorization, right? And I'm guilty of using the word progressive around this seminar series, right? Because I felt like, well, you know, I've got to somehow describe what it is, who, you know, I think we're going to be talking about. But to to for me to say, oh, well, these people are progressive, these people are not. I mean, that's not for me to do do as far as I'm concerned. I mean, to me, that's up to them, you know, up to the individuals to decide, you know, whether they're a progressive Christian or not. Yes, I did. And, um, you know, it's like, um, I, um, on the Compassionate Christianity website, you know, I say to folks, it's up to you to decide whether you're Christian or not. I mean, it's not for me to decide that, right? So anyway, um, you know, back to the question about progressive Latinos or Latino Catholics is progressive. I mean, that, I think that's up to them. Um, in any event, um, uh, question from Eileen. I'm a progressive Baptist pastor in North Carolina. One of my deep concerns is for the undocumented parents in our community. Can you speak to effective ways to add to this group? 
Anyone want to take that? You cut out the end, Brian. Can you say to advocate for the group? Was this was that what? I'm sorry. Uh, it says one of my deep concerns is for the undocumented parents in our community. Can you speak to effective ways to advocate for that group? I can share uh, one piece of advice, which is to to call your member of Congress and let them know what you know the action you want to see done. But here's the now that might be what any activist will tell you to do, right? Uh, call the people responsible for the policy and ask them to change it to one that is more life-giving. But I want to ask you to do it as a pastor. Now, everyone on this call might not be a pastor. Some of us, uh, you know, may just be people of faith in the pews, you know, grassroots Christians. And I think the key um, and what really changes things in Washington is when people start advocating as Christians and making that explicit. Because I can tell you from my experience in a lot of meetings on Capitol Hill, they are hearing from uh, Christians who are opposed to immigration, who want to deport um, all undocumented immigrants, those Christians are very loud. And, uh, you know, Trump was very loud about his Christian faith, right? He held up the Bible when he cleared the protesters out, uh, the Black Lives Matter protesters with tear gas. They're very loud. And they say as Christians, you know, uh, Romans 13, kick all immigrants out. They didn't come the right way. You know, that thin veil of Bible they place over their racism. So what I am in, uh, asking people to do, and I think it's very effective, not in an exclusive way. I tell this to rabbis and imams and people of all different faiths, is to do it out of your faith and make that explicit in your advocacy. And one group I work with that I'll recommend is called Faithful America, uh, faithfulamerica.org which is an online community where you sign petitions to Congress and other people that have the power to change policy. And you do it as a Christian, which I think is just uh, really changes the entire dynamics of our politics in Washington. If we all do that. Excellent advice. Excellent advice. Thank you. Well, um, I would like to leave a little bit of time for each of our panelists to talk a little bit about what projects they're working on next. Um, you know, obviously without, um, you know, revealing anything that you can't reveal, but um, I'd love for you to think, you know, to, to share with folks kind of where you're headed, you know, what are you focusing on um, going forward? So Christy, again, do you want to start off with that? Yeah, um, thank you for that too, by the way, just an opportunity to um, share. I had already mentioned um, the follow-up to Parable, the Brown Girl is called Unbossed which is actually taken from Shirley Chisholm's um, presidential campaign, first black woman to run for president, um, actually 50 years ago in January. It will be 50 years ago this, this upcoming January. So the, the phrase unbossed was inspired by her campaign slogan, unbought, unbought and unbossed. Um, but this is called Unbossed, How Black Girls Are Leading the Way. Um, and that's the adult version. There is a middle grade version with beaming books called Black Girls Unbossed, Young World Changers Leading the Way, pretty much the same thing. Um, and uh, it's about eight um, young women from the ages of 15. I interviewed some of them too, like a year ago or so. So they were a little bit younger, but 15 to about 22 um, who are all just making significant change in their, um, in their community in the respective areas. And just examples of girls, I've got Tia Moy Roberts, who was one of the young um, 
black activist that came out of uh, Marjorie, Stoneman Douglas, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in the wake of the Parkland shooting. Um, there were a young group of um, black students there that said, hey, we're being overlooked. We're, we, we were part of this too. We were, we were victims of this too, particularly when all the spotlight was being put on um, the young students um, uh, that, that came out of that back in like 2018, I think it was. Um, and then she went on to uh, be a speaker and a, a board member for March for Our Lives. And is, um, but the, the point of the, the book is sort of to highlight the girls, um, their narratives, their leadership, but also like a uh, particular leadership style that they have. So, um, you know, transformational leaders, what I would call Tia Moy, and I go just into detail, sort of like the academics of transformational leadership, but also Black women that came before uh, uh, her and all of us that were transformational leaders like Fannie Lou Townsend Hamer, for example. Um, and then just sort of the, the chapters end with sort of giving sort of um, leadership wisdom from that I learned from, from each of the girls. So they, you have uh, activists like Tia Moy, but then you also have um, you know, uh, environmental eth ethicists, activists. Um, we've got, you know, uh, sort of a Black Lives Matter activist, but they're, they all just come from different um, spectrums, mental health advocacy. You know, one girl was diagnosed with um, stage four non-Hodgkin's lymphoma when she was just seven years old. And then when, she, you know, just another year or two later, her and her mother started an organization called the We Can Serve Foundation, just uh, serving um, young kids that are sick and in foster care. And she wound up being a CNN young wonder. Um, they think they call them young wonders and not heroes. So I just have very much enjoyed uh, writing about them. And I can't wait to share their stories. They are all different now. Um, and, uh, you know, it's fun to see how much they've evolved. But um, we'll see their pictures in the books and their actual stories, their actual organizations, and in the, the middle grade, their illustrations of the girls. So that warms my heart very differently than Parable, because again, those were anonymous, and I couldn't really share who those girls were. But to put these girls out front and center um, is, uh, has, been, has been a joy. So that comes out International Women's Day um, 2022. So March 8th, 2022, both of the books come out. So we'll, we'll definitely do a book launch interview, Chrissy, when Matt was ready, because I, I know a lot of people want to hear more about that. So thank you. Guthrie, how about you? What kinds of uh, innovative new things have you got cooking? I want to write about international Christian progressive solidarity. Wow. One of the um, most interesting moments of my time in seminary, I was at Union Theological Seminary in New York, was I was sitting in... Um, systematic theology with the late Reverend Dr. James Cone, and he casually mentioned in the middle of a lecture, oh yeah, I was co-teaching a course with Gustavo Gutierrez. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> You'd co-taught in like 1970, early 1970s. He was like, oh, I co-taught this course. I was writing about black liberation theology. Gutierrez was writing about, um, speaking of Latino Catholics, you know, uh, progressive Latino Catholics, Gutierrez, he was writing about liberation theology in a Latin American context. And so we decided to co-teach a course. And so after class, I go, Dr. Cohn, uh, do you still have the syllabus? And we go up to his <laughs> office and he found it. Uh, wow. It was just so much fun. And those connections across so many different cultures, inspired by Jesus's revolutionary social justice ethos, that people are living it out in very different places. 
it's really inspiring to me um, that a lot of Christians uh, in New Zealand, for instance, have been active in um, really kind of addressing the harms they did uh, as colonizers um, and kind of coming to terms with that through history and uh, reparations and changes to policy today um, with indigenous people of New Zealand. And so I'm very interested in looking all over the world uh, at cases of uh, Jesus followers who saw the what's going on in their own society and took action. Uh, and so that, that's the idea for the next book is to expand. And I hate how so many U.S. Christians are so focused, progressive and conservative across the spectrum. People are only focused about our country. So I hope to, to do that kind of international look. Oh, that's going to be very cool. Been very, I think, a great learning experience for all of us. So thank you for undertaking such a thing. Kate, what about you? What's up next? Yeah, well, I'm going to um, practice being more brave and more bold. Um, I'm going to, you know, I, uh, as, as Brian knows, something that, again, just very, this conversation is extremely timely for me and very encouraging. And I think that's something um, that I hope to do with my writing is encourage others. And I think this conversation has been really encouraging for me. You know, I have maintained, um, I talk about being bivocational at the front. I, as I came, as I've become a Christian writer, I've um, really kept my lives separated. I've had two platforms, essentially, one about my public health work and one about my faith-based writing. And I was advised, actually, to keep those separate. Um, and so I feel like I'm at a place where I want to break down those, some of those barriers in my own self. And I think that that really is timely for this conversation because, you know, I'm out there doing evidence-based public health work for in the middle of a global pandemic. You know, there was a raging that, you know, um, debate about vaccine efficacy. It's like we need evidence-based public, you know, people who are also deeply, deeply um, comfortable being open about how their faith informs their work and um, galvanizes their work. And, um, you know, that's, again, I'm sort of the constituent that I think we're talking about. So I'm really going to take my call to action as for myself to really, again, be more more bold about being um, my full self. And that doesn't mean that I have to like beat, um, I think my faith-based perspective, um, you know, beat that drum all the time. But I think what it means for me is showing up more fully and more honestly about, again, what motivates me, which in my work and life is my faith. So um, I'm excited for that. And you all can help me hopefully in that journey. And I'll also say, um, you know, Guthrie, I really, the international perspective really um, resonates with me deeply. You know, I talked to my, I, ta I have a couple of really dear colleagues in Nigeria, and I just talked to them about who supported me in my book launch and in my bivocational life. And like, I talked to them about this tension in the United States where it's like this incredible sort of almost anxiety, you know, incredible anxiety about progressive faith people. And they're just like, it doesn't, they're like, wow, there isn't that divide for them. You know, it's, it's like their work and their faith is commingled. You know, you start meetings with prayer and then you dive into the science and it's all just there and it's all one. So I think, you know, Guthrie, as you think about international work, I think it's just, you know, there may, it's just like the, there's so much, I think, just day-to-day -day living where faith and, and life are just so, like, intermingled. And I think we need to get back to that in the United States. Um, yeah, so just a couple thoughts for me. But, again, Brian, I also just want to um, thank you for your leadership. And I think, 
you know, you were just doing so much to amplify the voice of progressive Christian writers. And so um, I just want to also thank you and um, really do whatever I can to help you in your work, and including to say that um, Healing Our Divides is an incredible book. And just really, again, appreciate all the, all the ways you're bringing people together. So thank you. Well, thank you so much, Kate. I mean, there's a lot of work to be done. So um, we've got, unfortunately, a long uh, runway, a lot of opportunities. Um, <laughs> so the next two things up for me, um, short term, um, October 18th, we start a Christian children's book online conference as part of Writing for Your Life. And then in um, November, I think it's November 8th, we start uh, another Writing for Your Life online conference called uh, Writing in the Second Half of Life. So anybody interested in those kinds of things? of uh, events can go to writingforyourlife.com. And um, as part of this series, we have three more webinars coming up. The next one is Wednesday, October 6th, with Jennifer Grant, Brian McLaren, and Sophronia Scott. So, you know, three more really bright people, just like the three bright people that we've had here today. And I know personally, I could just spend, you know, plenty of time, uh, several hours talking with the three of you to, um, you know, pick your brains about all the different issues that we have facing us today. So I want to thank you all for sharing that with us and spending some time with us to, you know, share your thoughts uh, with people that, uh, you know, may not necessarily always get to hear from you. So, um, so thanks for doing that and um, greatly appreciate it. For everyone else, um, you know, thank you so much for joining us and uh, hope you can make it for the uh, rest of the sessions. Um, but bye for now. Thanks again. Thank you.